You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste. Coming up on the show tonight, wine merchant Ron Forrestal with his ever popular wine slot will be here talking about pairing wine and food. Guest editor of Easy Food magazine, Rachel Allen, will be on the phone to talk about the August issue. Resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley is here not to do her usual restaurant review, but to talk about her visit to Israel and the food scene there. And chef Gary Hanlon has a fantastic lamb recipe, or maybe two, to share with us. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie, or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. But let's not delay any further and get clinking those bottles and welcome wine guru Ron Forrestal to tonight's programme. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, welcome to the studio this evening. Thanks very much, Sharon. And we're going to talk about pairing wine with food. Yes, yeah, it's a very complicated and difficult thing to to get across, really. But people do ask constantly ask questions about what wine is best suited to go with what. So I thought we'd give a little overall view um, on on what wines are traditionally to go with things and some of the newer ones, and then have a look at a couple of wines after that. Some people might think, oh, look, this is all a load of cod's wallop that doesn't make any difference. And me personally now, having having enjoyed a couple of meals out with wine pairings, I actually was amazed at how well they complemented the food and how it did enhance the overall dining experience. It does. And the main thing is that they don't take away from each other, that that you, you don't... Drink a white that's uh, too acidic, uh, that can take over from a very delicate dish, or with a red that you don't drink a red that's too heavy, and, and that would be a reasonably light and um, lighter white meat or a lamb dish that's a big red, and it would take over completely the meal. So the thing is to get the wines that complement each other if you can. So is it a case of white fish, red with red meat? Is that... It's within reason that's about right. Okay. Um, there is there is a kind of a grey area where you can have some light reds that work fairly well with very meaty fish, uh, which would be like, you know, hake, monkfish, some of the stronger ones. But it really depends on what's going with the fish, how strong the sauce is, the accompaniments that are with it, um, to whether you can get away with some red. And it'd be much lighter reds now, like the, the Beaujolais, much lighter Pinot Noirs, nothing like Cabernet Sauvignon, Shiraz, or even Merlot would work at all. Just far too heavy. The thing is, when people get used to drinking uh, wine on a fairly regular basis, they tend to stick to the same thing a lot of the time, regardless what they eat at all. But what I'm saying is that if you have a party, uh, you know, a dinner party at home where you have six or eight people coming to it, this is the ideal time to get three or four bottles of wine, try out three or four things. You're only going to have to have third of it, last of it, and then move on to something else. Whereas if you're sitting down with your husband, it's very difficult to open up a bottle of Riesling yes, yeah. to decide yourself whether you're going to have that or not. So I'm saying is to get a few people together, have a taste of something, or just sit, say to six people who are coming tonight, bring a bottle of wine with each and we're going to try something different along That's a good idea. If yeah. you can. But generally, yeah, the lighter white, lighter dry white wines, which should be like traditionally some Sauvignon Blancs, um, moving on to then the more medium body whites which is like Chardonnay and then the heavier whites which are more full bodied whites like Riesling Viognier those much more minerally kind of heavy whites and the way the food works with that is that the 
the, the lighter whites tend to be vegetable-based kind of things that are, I don't mean the word bland, but tend to be fairly light on flavour. And then getting up to the more rich whites, you're talking about something with cheese in it, heavier cream in it, um, white wine sauces in particular. Um, and then the the reds then start off with the lighter red dishes, which would be, you know, you're like your rack of lamb, which would be a fairly reasonable veal, down to the white meats like chicken, where you'd start off with Pinot Noir, um, Beaujolais, and then moving on to the, the red meats like your your beef, um, venison, any game, you're getting right up into the Cabernet Sauvignon, much heavier, Cabernet Shiraz, blended, which is real full-bodied. And then some of the Shirazes are just phenomenally full-bodied. They really need something really strong with them. So that when you take a taste, you taste the wine, then you taste the food, and they work pretty well together. So does it go quite well with cheese and like blue cheeses, the Shiraz? Not particularly because it's very, it's kind of peppery. It has a kind of real sharp flavour to it. So what works, what works very well with cheese is port, because port mm, is much does, smoother. Yeah. Uh, it's full body, but very smooth and has that real long aftertaste, which is perfect with cheese. Uh, but if, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon works very well with cheese. Um, some of the um, uh, other reds, like Zinfandel, which isn't that particularly heavy, but full of really ripe flavour. Like if you think of cheese, you think of like having relish or something with it that's very sweet. So like a Zinfandel from California is perfect because it's, it's almost like Christmas cake kind of flavours off it, which makes it like what you're accompanying the cheese with. Does it matter what country they're from then? Is that, is that another science it to it's that? A, it's another again? level of it again because a Cabernet Sauvignon from France and a Cabernet Sauvignon from Australia will be two completely different animals. A Cabernet Sauvignon from France will be relatively um, full-bodied, whereas the Cabernet Sauvignon from Australia will be really full-bodied. There's just nowhere to hide in that. And mainly it's because the alcohol level will be much higher. could be anything from 2 or 3% higher in some cases, which makes yeah. a big difference. Okay. So what tips do you have then for people? Well, well, what I'm saying, I'm trying to get to people is just to try something different, Mm -hmm. you know, to take that opportunity to walk into the, you know, to the supermarkets now, you're bombarded with lots of product, but you'll find in the white wine section, there might be 50 wines there. Uh, Probably 35 of them will be Sauvignon Blanc, um, five of them will be Chardonnay, um, you know, and eight or nine Pinot Grigios, and there might be one Riesling, one Viognier, and one... So just every now and again, just try one. Just try, take it down, have a taste of it, and, and keep a note if you can. I know that sounds ridiculous now, but just keep a note somewhere that says, I had that, it was very nice. Instead of, I get a lot of people ringing me saying, I had this really nice bottle of wine. Can't remember the name of it. Don't know what the grape variety was. Don't know where it was from. But I can pitch the bottle. If I seen the bottle again, I'd know what the bottle was. And it's a pity now in this day and age when we have the camera phones that they just Absolutely. hadn't even thought to take the yeah, shot exactly. of it. Exactly. Just take a flick yeah. of it, and you even get apps now that'll you'll take the picture of the label and they'll tell you where you can get it. Yeah, I find that I never remember, and I suppose maybe whenever I'm enjoying the wine, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I must have this again, but it doesn't click in my brain mm. to actually make a note of it. And I think that's where it's important to support your local off-licenses or merchants like yourself Mm. where that advice and support and expertise is there that you wouldn't get in the supermarkets when you're standing looking at the shelves. I think a lot of people are guided strictly by price then. I think they are and they're guided by what they've had before. So they're probably confined to five or six different, not even brand names, but wines within brands that they actually like and don't tend to go outside that. And you can see that from supermarkets where 
the very popular brands are expanding, expanding the amounts of them that are on shelves, which means they have less products to keep. Um, whereas independent wine shops, which I have fantastic time for, God bless them how they keep going because they they cannot compete at the level of pricing that a, that a supermarket is able to. But they look at their shelves, they'll have one bottle, um, a shelf that'll hold eight, eight lines of bottles, they'll have eight different products in it, you know, which is amazing to keep. They could be keeping anything up to four or 500 wines in a shop. And that's an amazing um, ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And they, they, the knowledge they have is from when they give a bottle of wine to you, Sharon, you come in and they convince you to buy one, you're going to make it your, your, your business to go back and tell them what you thought about it. It might take a week or it might take a month, but you're going to tell them. And then they have honest to God reaction on something that they sold, which is, you can't buy. That never happens in a supermarket because no one ever tells anyone, never stops anybody in the aisle and said, I had a great bottle of wine last week. Absolutely. And, you know, you can trust that kind of recommendation then because it suits and, and they want you to come back. They don't want to sell you anything you'd, that you're not going to like because course, they want you to yeah. come back. Yeah. So, And you've brought two bottles in tonight. I did. They're brand new. Um, so just list them for the first time um, this week um, from Charles Bossy in, in France. They're a real restaurant product. They look like a kind of a restaurant product, which is uh, where we've aimed them at. Um, they're called Patio, or Patio, as they're um, think, as it's spelled. I think the locals will be calling it Patio. <laughs> patio sounds so much better. It, it, it's a range, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Pinot Noir. They're really nice, great value, and really nice drink. Sauvignon Blanc and the Chardonnay, two whites are fantastic. The, the, we've been looking for a long time to find a range of wines at that level that people could use as a good house wine. And they're they're fitting perfectly. And they've got a fantastic reaction of the few people we give them to. And any particular foods that you would recommend that they're served with? But this Sauvignon Blanc is great with salads, you know, because Caesar salad. I was I was away for a few days and, and uh, of the three or four restaurants I was in, the menus are so standard these days. Everyone has a, has a Caesar salad of some version of another. And this is the perfect product for that because the Caesar salad is very creamy dressing. Sauvignon Blanc is nice and sharp, so it's going to cut through that and be nice and clean. Um, and the Chardonnay, that's in this range as well perfectly smoked salmon because chardonnay and smoked salmon go very well together really they're real rounded okay. and they're nice flavours on the reds the merlot is a nice not too heavy real lamb kind of product and then the cabernet sauvignon is a good bit heavier more for red meat and the pinot noir is just a perfect one if you're having a glass of red wine without anything just sitting down having a nice ripe glass of red wine that's not too heavy have I ever told you that chardonnay tends to make me a bit nasty <laughs> I told you that before. <laughs> I, I I steer away from Chardonnay not because I don't like it, but because it I turn into such a cow if I'm drinking Chardonnay. I will fight with my shadow. It's it's not something I've seen any any um, any evidence of before, but it's it's. I suppose it depends. <laughs> it's um, it depends on the God. There's only a few people drinking Chardonnay at this stage. That it's. Uh, it's not a nationwide problem anyway. Um, Hopefully not. <laughs> it's a bit like now, Michael cannot have Stella Artois. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. He gets quite... Really? Yeah. He gets gets into a very bad mood if he drinks it. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, no Stella. So if we go no out, like, there's only Stella Artois, <laughs> Stella Artois and Chardonnay there. Everybody's running a mile. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ron, thanks so much for coming in to tell us about those. Forestal.ie is the website address so people can get in touch with you if they're ever looking for advice, if they're having dinner parties or parties. Absolutely, Facebook page, Forestal Wine Merchants, just pop a question there, we'll get back to you. All right, great. 
Thanks so much for coming in tonight. Thanks, we'll talk sure. to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Ron from Forestal Wine Merchants. And if you have a wine question for Ron for his next visit, you can email it to me, s.noonan at live.ie, and I'll be sure to put it to him when he is next in studio. Still to come tonight, resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley is here, not to do her usual job, but to talk about her visit to Israel and the food scene there. And Chef Gary O'Hanlon has a fantastic lamb recipe to share with us. Next, though, it's time to move from wine in the studio to the phone to Rachel Allen, who doesn't really need any introduction. But this evening, she joins me to talk about the August issue of Easy Food magazine, of which she is the guest editor. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, it's great to have you on the show tonight. Thank you, Sharon. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And I love Easy Food magazine, so I'm delighted that you're the guest editor for August. Thank you. Me too. I remember way, way back when Easy Food started. I worked with them way back. And it's, it's, I've always liked the magazine. It's a really good one. It always seems to be full of recipes that work. It's achievable, you know, attainable. It's, it's all good. So, um, And then they asked me to be guest editor for August. So I was thrilled to be. What input have you had yourself in the actual issue that's going to come out next week? Oh, well, quite a bit. <laughs> um, with, well, various recipes, with introductions, with tips, with, um, I hope, I hope lots of really good, useful tips and lots of great, useful recipes. One of the the aspects of the magazine that I always highlight each month is the way that they get the kids involved and they have a kids section in it. Yes, I know. That's really nice. It's really good because many of the people who who buy the magazine are parents. And you're a mother yourself. I would imagine that you like to get them into the kitchen. I do. Well, two of them are older. Two of them are teenagers and one of them is younger. So the the two teenagers tend to... um, get themselves in the kitchen when the, when they need to, when they're hungry or when mum isn't at home cooking for them the whole time. And then Scarlett, our six-year-old, just wants to bake all the time. So so they're all, yeah, but you know what, they're, they're all pretty, pretty good in the kitchen, I hope. So I think. you've passed on the talent to them? Oh, I don't know, but, but I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that they're, they're learning. And, you know, it's just really important for, I think, for, for anyone to be able to feed themselves. It's the most basic skill to be able to cook for yourselves and your family and your friends so I'm hoping that um, I can you know get them to learn even a bit more before the guys leave school and stuff like that. You must come across parents every now and again that are struggling to get their children to to eat never mind actually make the food for themselves what advice do you give to them? A few tips really I think I think one thing is the, the, the kind of food that you want your children to eat it needs to be in the house you know don't complain about them eating junk food if there's junk food in the house and you're trying to get them to eat something else um, I mean I know what I'm like even with crisps and I know that if they're crisps in the house I will just eat them so actually I don't keep them in the house unless I'm buying them for you know my friends coming over for a glass of wine so I'll buy crisps for now and so if, if the freezer's full of um, junk food then you can't really expect them to eat much, much else do you know what I mean? Absolutely You yeah. need to actually have the kitchen prepared you need to you need to buy in you need to um get and then cook and prepare the food that you want them to eat and 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 i think eating as a family is really important so rather than um if possible now i know that's not always possible but one one meal for the children and one meal for the adults sometimes i feel can send out different messages you know we all eat the one thing i think that's 
good thing, good place to start. Um, but if you're offering them good food, and it can be simple food, it doesn't have to be, I'm not saying it has to be, you know, prepared over five hours. It can be something simple, something lovely. It could be an omelette, it could be lovely, you know, roast chicken or roast potatoes, boiled new potatoes, carrots, roasted carrots, something just simple, but it, it really... Um, you know, if there's junk in the food and they fill up, junk at food in the kitchen and they fill up on that, well, then you can't expect them to eat good food, really. But I do think if you're going out to the supermarket or the green grocers or the butchers, wherever you're going, it's actually say to your children, okay, what would you like? You know, um, do you like roast chicken? Do you like a bit of fish? What, what do you want? Do you want me to make you a burger or whatever it is? And if you have time and try and even just do this the odd time, is get them a little bit involved in either the buying or the prepping of the food. That's going to help as well. I think one of the huge advantages of Easy Food magazine is the beautiful pictures and the images in it. So I think if you give the magazine to the children and say, go through that now and put a tick yeah, against the, a really good idea. the pictures that look nice and that appeal the to them. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And you're, you're talking about eating as a family. And Paul Flynn said exactly the same thing last month, that he feels it's very important to sit down and, and make the effort to eat yeah. as a family. Absolutely, it really is. And also, I do think, actually, one thing that my husband has always done, Isaac, is to not give them huge portions, because that can just be intimidating, a huge portion of something on the plate, but a small portion on the plate. And then if they finish it, they can have more, and that's great, you know, but, but not too big a portion. Yeah, it can be a bit intimidating, of course, mm. yeah. Okay, well, listen, tell us about your favourite recipe that's in this month's Easy Food magazine. Oh, goodness. I don't know. Spoiled Ooh. for choice. Well, it could be the, it, uh, maybe the Indian spiced lamb chops, because that's what I would like tonight. That sounds Indian lovely. Indian spiced lamb chops are delicious with rice or boiled new potatoes. They're gorgeous, cooked on the barbecue, as I say, in the magazine. Or the ham and cheese muffins are really good for a snack, you know, to pack in a lunchbox or to take with you if you're out on the road at a match or things like that. That definitely sounds very child-friendly. Yeah, they are. They're great. Any other favourite recipes there? They're the gorgeous little blackberry, um, little quick, quick kind of cheesecakes, mini individual cheesecakes, but made in a little cup or a glass, little blackberry cheesecakes. They're quite nice as well, actually. Would you, you would have a sweet tooth yourself, I would imagine, because, well, the last time I interviewed you, you said that you kind you kind of find it quite difficult to, to stick with doing all sweet all the time and doing all savoury all the time, that you're really kind of conflicted between all those different flavours. No, I mean, just in, in, I think, in quite a balanced way. I, I don't, I mean, I, I like a bit of sweet and savoury, you know, just, yeah, I think in, in, in quite a balanced way. I think so. I love cooking sweet things, but I don't want to eat sweet things all the time. And I'm aware that, you know, we need to be aware of what's going into our bodies. So I think a little bit of, of what you fancy is quite nice. Are you working on any new books at the moment? I am. I am just actually finishing a new book called Coastal Cooking. Um, so that is nearly there. Actually, the programme's called Coastal Cooking and the book will be called Coast. So that'll be out in the autumn. So you've been out filming for the past couple yes. of months? Yes, I have. It's been great fun actually filming all around the coast of Ireland. Wild Atlantic Way, the focus on that area, I would it's imagine. A little bit, exactly. In the Wild Atlantic Coast, we're not, it's not completely, it's a bit more than the Wild Atlantic Way. But yeah, it's been great. So is it very much a fish-focused? Um, no, it's about kind of 50-60% fish, but a lot of other things that you find along the coast, like delicious honey, like delicious, say, um, uh, cream, like delicious, you know, all the wonderful dairy, all the wonderful meats, 
So it's a big mixture, actually. Well, we will definitely look out for that coming up in the autumn then. Um, Sounds great. And just in time for the Christmas market, of course, for the the cookbooks. I've loads of people that I buy the cookbooks for for Christmas, so that'll be great to to see yours coming up. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking to me tonight. Easy Food Magazine out on the shelves on July the 28th at €3.20. It's a steal because readers will be totally overwhelmed by all those great recipes there and we look forward to seeing your input this month Rachel. Thank you so much Sharon. Great to talk to you. Bye. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard earlier from Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. And just before the break, I was chatting to the lovely Rachel Allen about the latest issue of Easy Food magazine, of which she is the guest editor. And Easy Food has launched their 2015 Home Cook Hero competition. And I'll be talking to Caroline Gray to find out more about this year's categories, how to enter and what you could win in the next week week or two. Never fear if you've missed some of the show as it will be up in the best possible taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, Chef Gary O'Hanlon has a fantastic lamb recipe to share with us. But before that, my next guest joins me in the studio. Normally, Rachel Keeley pops in to review her latest restaurant visit. But tonight, it's a completely different visit that she's going to tell us about. And that is a visit that she made recently to Israel. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in this evening and we're going to talk about something completely different than your usual restaurant reviews and that was your most recent trip away which was to Israel. Yes, we're not long back. We went to Israel for a week and to Jordan for a couple of days afterwards so a great trip. And what attracted you to there in the first place? My parents had been, um, as had my grandparents. Would you believe my grandparents sailed from Dublin to Tel Aviv back in the 50s? So it's always been somewhere sort of in the back of my head that I have to get to to, to keep up the, the family line, I suppose. That sounds like a very exotic trip for back in those days. Was it a cruise that they did there? No, no, they um, they were big into yachting and sailing and uh, my granddad built his own boat and uh, took off across the sea. So, as you say, very exotic and something I couldn't even imagine doing now with all the all of the facilities available to us. But they had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and they decided they'd go and do it. When you go away, obviously food is high in your agenda, given the nature of your job as a reviewer for Food & Wine magazine. Had you done much research about places to eat before you you travelled? On this occasion, I didn't really, because in the past when I've gone abroad, I have, you know, done a lot of research, selected a few places and then sort of really tried everything to get to those places despite whatever was happening on our holidays. So this time we just decided to completely go with the flow and to just take local recommendations and to go to wherever really took our fancy, which ended up transpiring to be a really good idea and the best way to see a little bit of everything. 
And was it places that were recommended by locals that locals would have been dining in that you went to as opposed to tourist places? Oh, very much so. We we found the Israeli people to be unbelievably welcoming and so happy to sit down and have a chat, especially in Tel Aviv, which is very, very cosmopolitan. Uh, it really felt like you were in a European seaside city, maybe um, somewhere in Spain or France or something like that. And it, it, the people were more than happy to even stop us in the street and have a chat and tell us where we should go and what we should see and what we should eat. And what did you eat? Everything, Sharon. <laughs> a little bit of absolutely everything. We we stayed uh, in a little boutique hotel about ten minutes walk from the beach, um, just to try and stay a wee bit out of the out of the craziness and, and have a little bit of quiet time, um, which was good because it meant we got to move away a little bit from the tourist aspect and, and see a bit more of the local things. So, for example, um, we rented bikes, which you can do very very easily there, and we cycled absolutely everywhere. So, we went to Old Jaffa um, and had some lovely fruit smoothies there, um, which sound very very simplistic but this fruit over there of course is so much more flavoursome the oranges and everything the Jaffa oranges incredible and the limes and the lemons and everything was just bursting with flavour which is fabulous so we ended up pretty much starting off every single day with those probably an enormous amount of sugar in our systems for 7am in the morning but it tasted lovely anyway think of the vitamin C think of the vitamins yes to offset all the wine Um, and then we um had grabbed ice cream things like that and stopping for falafels and stopping for kebabs and tasting the street food which we really really enjoyed and again people were so generous they'd pop out they saw us loitering outside and just hand us a little falafel to taste and to kind of see if we could if they could tempt us in so it was um a nice way to get a taste a little bit of everything by just wandering the streets but the very first morning we got in there we had to uh, we had to go and get uh, shakshuka if I'm pronouncing it correctly so, and that was a fantastic way to start off our Israeli dining experience fabulously fresh and and beautifully flavoured what is it? Tell me what it is. It's um, it's an egg and tomato dish, essentially. You may well have seen it online in different photographs. Um, it essentially is a tomato, a tomato base with eggs cracked on top. And sometimes they might add a little bit of ham, sometimes not. Uh, spiced and then put in an oven entirely. The pan is flame, fr- flame proof. Put in the oven, baked. Uh, so the eggs go beautifully kind of uh, runny on the outside. And then you eat it with lots of fresh bread. Fabulous. Uh, you mentioned spices there. Are, are there lots of markets selling spices and fresh food and oh, jeepers, yes, vegetables. Um, without a doubt, my mum had made sure that I go to Carmel Market. It was one place that she she really wanted me to visit, and I wasn't disappointed. In fact, I just looked there yesterday. I have about eight bags of spices at home that I brought home and they're all in Hebrew and I haven't a notion what they are but I'm going to have to go and explore and try and build my own recipes from them Spicing, spice and spice mixing is huge over there and, and it's it's a real science you know so certain sellers at different parts of the market were very very well known you'd see all the locals queuing up because they had a particularly well respected way of mixing spices um, and the flavours and the smells the aroma that was just would take you over as soon as you go into the market was, was amazing What was it like in terms terms of the price of food compared to here if you were in a restaurant the two of you having a meal would have been would have been very cheap reasonably cheap um not necessarily it was it was probably similar to here in many ways um, but I suppose that's because it's a very big city do you know it's sort of like being in in Dublin or or London um but what we did find is the places that we expected to be very expensive the, the more well-known tourist hotspots actually weren't they might have been very expensive to stay in, but we were surprised then that uh, the food wasn't exorbitant and the wine, despite being excellent, really wasn't expensive at all. So we might have uh, 
helped them drink a little bit of that Israeli wine <laughs> yes yeah um, they're big into mixing their grapes they're, they're, they often have mixing of six or seven different types of grapes um, which we had explained to us as being something that is very much encouraged and um and enjoyed in Israel, whereas in the European tradition, we'd normally, I think, limit the, the mixing of the grapes to a little bit less. So it obviously worked. The, the wine was fantastic. I only wish I'd brought home some. It's unfortunately, the luggage you're restricted. I know, I know. I, couldn't, I was bringing too much spices back instead. <laughs> what was the food highlight for you then? Well, in Tel Aviv, I suppose just to stay there before uh, Jerusalem, we stayed in... Um, an area in the German colony and which is very very interesting actually because it looks very European they all have pitched roofs um, and which which our taxi driver told us was an accident apparently when the colonists arrived to Israel they arrived in the summer and thought it would snow in the winter so they built the roofs that way and never needed them as it transpired um, but there we went to this nice little very laid back cafe that serves picnics so you go in, you order from, it's like a deli, you order different things. They fill a picnic basket for you, put a bottle of wine and uh, a blanket in it and they send you off to the local park. And then when you're finished, you go back and drop the basket back. So it was so simple, but so enjoyable to be able to sit in a park in Tel Aviv, watch the world go by and have some really nice fresh food from the deli around the corner. Lovely. Sounds like a great idea. Of course, you wouldn't get the basket and the picnic blanket back here. Nor would you get the weather. That was the only problem. We, we were able to sit out in the lovely sun and enjoy it. But uh, I can't imagine getting away with that for very long here. You said you went to Jerusalem next. We did. Um, we stayed um, again. It must have been must have been a German aspect, but we stayed in the German quarter there too, um, and of course visited all the major highlights. We went to the old city, visited the Wailing Wall, the underground tunnels, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, all those aspects. Um, and in the old city, actually, we got to taste a proper uh, donor kebab, the, the way it probably should be done, but it really isn't at four o'clock in the morning and <laughs> outside nightclubs here. Um, we had that in the Muslim quarter, and it was absolutely fabulous. Again, the the fresh of the ingredients you know the, the flavours just sang in a way that just certainly wouldn't happen here Was Jerusalem fabulous? It was it was very very different to Tel Aviv um, very very different atmosphere as well uh, and obviously tightly packed too you've got such a huge variety of people and they're all living cheek by jowl so it was um, probably a lot less laid back than Tel Aviv but certainly very very interesting and again the food was fabulous we went to the American Colony for cocktails um, that's the sort of very famous hotel over there where a lot of politicians stay I think Tony Blair has just moved out um, we couldn't afford to stay there so we went for cocktails and left fairly quickly afterwards but it was lovely it was a really nice way to kind of um, relax after a day's sightseeing um, and then this is what I was saying I suppose about the expensive places being not as expensive as you might think uh, we went to the Notre Dame Hotel which would be the very very big um, religious hotel there a lot of um, people from the Vatican would stay there and we went up to the very very top floor where you can overlook the whole of the old city and they have a cheese and wine uh, area there now so while we're waiting for it to open up, um, the chef, who was obviously sick, sick looking at us, ordered us onto the roof. So we got to wander around the whole roof, looking around, looking over at the old city and getting some amazing photographs and taking it all in, which was lovely. And then had a beautiful mesa plate afterwards with a glass of Prosecco. So that was a lovely afternoon. And you went to Jordan after that? We did. Um, we crossed over um, at the Allenby Bridge, King Hussein Bridge, um, and that was a little bit of an ordeal, but we got there anyway. <laughs> um, an ordeal in terms of because of the conflict that's there? 
Um, no, I think logistics, to be honest, the conflict didn't seem to come into it. We got through fairly easily um, and then there was no bus. We're, tourists aren't allowed to take the locals' bus um, and they seem to want to wait for enough of us to gather together before they'd send a bus. So, Because you travelled independently, you organised the trip yourself, so you, you weren't part of a tour group or anything like that? No, no, not at all, no. Um, and we got our visas from the Jordanian embassy in Dublin, um, who were very helpful. But when we just got across into Jordan, we ended up having to spend around two and a half hours in the border sitting, waiting, pleading with them to give us a bus to just to get out of the terminal. That was all. But anyway, we got past it in the end and uh, went straight down to Petra which was fabulous, absolutely amazing. The Pink City, very, very, very very old, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's essentially architecture that's been dug out of the rock down there. So they've built entire temples out of rock. It looks phenomenal and it's, it's one of those places you'll never forget once you visit it. And the food then compared to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv was it all around the same type of flavours and well similar flavours I mean the Middle Eastern uh, spices and Middle Eastern tastes were coming through certainly but what we actually did down there in, in quite a, a, a change we stayed in a Bedouin camp um, so we went out into the desert essentially and stayed with a lovely family who were so hospitable to us um, underneath the stars so we ate what they ate which was uh, they have this this custom of presenting a very big plate with a little bit of everything on it so there was spiced rice and lamb and yogurt and hummus and aubergine and fabulous mix of flavours just incredible and everyone takes their portion from that big dish and eats that and then we sat around the fire for the evenings then drinking spiced black tea it was a lovely lovely couple of days and a really good way to to just unplug from the very hectic world that we live in back here. And you were totally immersed in the culture then, staying with a family. Completely, which is what we wanted. We didn't want to go and stay in a um, in a big sort of generic hotel when you don't actually get to enjoy any of the culture then. Um, and incredibly cheap too, of course. You know, we're staying there in this lovely tent in this with this lovely family eating amazing food. Um, and I think it cost €30 Euro a night. How did you find them? How did you find that? Was that Airbnb or something similar? No, um, quite a lot of digging around online um, every evening with the laptop on my lap it was um, the rock camp I think actually is what what it was called Um, and it's fairly accessible online you can find the website for it Um, and it it worked out beautifully it was a really really nice way to see Jordan and would they have got the majority of that money that you paid for that stay Um, well they work for the owner I suppose of the camp because to be fair it's a fairly elaborate camp there's a lot of tents there you know and we were the only guests on that particular night because it's off season and they said they're quite badly affected as well by the political tensions over the last year or so and we heard the same in Jerusalem the same in Tel Aviv Um, so the people people there do need tourism to pick back up all right. so uh, I would imagine in terms of Jordanian camp um, they work for the owner presumably it's it's split in some, some description Well, it sounds like an amazing trip. I'm sure you'll be blogging about it at some stage whenever you're not so busy because you're always (laughs) so busy. And your blog is rmkeely.com. And of course, if people are going to Israel, because I've heard a number of people talking about trips to Israel and they want to get some hints and tips, they can tweet you. They can indeed, absolutely, at rmkeely on Twitter. Fantastic. Rachel, thanks so much. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, you heard me talking to Rachel Keeley about her travels in Israel. 
Earlier in the show, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was here and Rachel Allen was on the phone talking about the August issue of Easy Food magazine, which is going to be out on the shelves on July 28th. So keep an eye out for that. And you can listen to those interviews again later in the week when they go up in the Best Possible Taste podcast, which you'll find on soundcloud.com. Now, a few weeks ago, Gary O'Hanlon, executive chef from Viewmont House, was on the phone chatting about lots of different topics. And tonight he's back and this time it's to focus on cooking with lamb and he's going to share a recipe or maybe two with us. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Gary, great to have you back on the show again. Good to be here. And tonight we're going to talk about lamb, but specifically Ackle Mountain lamb. Yes, that's right. I'm a big fan. You launched their season, in fact, there about a month ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fourth of July, yeah, we kicked it off. Uh, the Calvi family, they were kind enough. I've been using it, came across it. Not really sure how it uh, I, I came my way, but I got a wee taster probably through Eurotalks and my involvement with those. And... Uh, we got in touch, and ever since last year, um, whenever I'd heard about it, I started using it simply because I suppose it was it, it's that different season to what we would normally associate with lamb. I mean, it kicks off around July; it'll be August. Now you're going into September when it really, really comes into its own right up until um, the end of December. And yeah, they they invited me down uh, on Saturday, the fourth of July, to to the island to meet the rest of the the family and. Uh, kick off the new season it was a fantastic day I was talking to Martina Calvi a couple of months ago here on the radio show and she talked a bit about it being winter lamb can you just remind the listeners what that means yeah well it's it's a breed of lamb basically that, that just it's grazes on on the mountains off Ackle itself I mean I'm not sure if any listeners haven't been down there I mean I would make a beeline to get down to Ackle at, at your earliest chance you know because it's just so rugged and I mean it really I suppose being from Donegal it's almost like a home from home it has that same feel you know what I mean so the the lambs are literally there I mean you're, you're, you're driving down and you've got to be careful as you're as you're coming down into the island and the little country roads because they're, they're basically crossing the road and they're walking the hills and they're eating that mountain grass and heather and herbs and wild uh, ingredients that are just right there and, and as I say for me you know you I, we normally associate the lamb, as we say, like coming into, you know, May, April, May, there, thereabouts, you know, but it's, as I say, there's a, there's a different feed there, there's a different grass, it's, it's that type of thing, it's just like any, it's like any animal, you know, like it's, you get out what you put in and it's the same when it comes to, comes to the mountain lamb, you know, it's what they're eating or whatever, I find it milder, the blackest mountain lamb, I just, I, that wee subtleness of flavour doesn't come across as strong as, as, as other lamb that I would have had in the past, and uh, it's just incredible. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of it. I, I love it. And, and the family, you know, the key thing for me when it came to the Calvi family is, you know, it's it's, it's their area, it's their land. It comes, they cook it themselves. They have their own wee restaurant down there. They kill it themselves. They have their own abattoir. And there's absolutely, literally doesn't get anyone else's hands on it other than Helen and Martina and, and the rest of the the family and then it comes right to myself and Viewmount House and you know that's that's farm to fork the way I like it to be you know It's a very interesting family because there's mostly girls in the family there so you you have you're saying there about the abattoir and I know one of them is a butcher and it's great to see females doing those sort of jobs that people would traditionally associate with men 
Yeah, well, I absolutely. I suppose for me now, I mean, I, I know being down there at the launch, it was, I mean, I mean, every every two or three minutes, I kept meeting a different Calvi girl. I was like, going, oh my goodness, I'm in here. And Helen was standing beside me and she was having a laugh, you know, and I think there's eight of the girls and then a couple of guys as well. But I suppose for me, I've, I've always been a big fan of girls in kitchens anyway. I find, I find that they just have incredibly delicate hands and whenever you get a, a good girl that's a, a good woman that's a good worker they're just incredible grafters I suppose I didn't make as much of a double take but certainly when I was there and the, and the marquee was packed there was a lot of guys there and whichever I think it might have been Martina or which one of them I, I keep forgetting all the different names but they were standing there with you know obviously the chain glove and the big saw and there was a few guys there big burly men were standing there going and they were definitely taken aback and you know the butchery skills uh, offer were absolutely incredible, you know. So I mean, for me, as I say, it's normal to see girls running around with knives. Have a couple of girls in the viewman kitchen, and they're brilliant. But yeah, you know, they they all are just fantastic hard workers. They all get stuck on. They all have their own skill. They all contribute to the the, the Ackle Mountain Lamb family. And you know, as I say, it's just it's just wonderful to see that sort of. You know, that's really Ireland on a plate for me, you know, like they're rearing their own food, they're selling in their own restaurant, they're butchering and now they're starting to expand and guys like myself and then there's other chefs around Ireland, they're starting to benefit from it now, you know, because it's, you know, it's there, it's on our doorsteps and it's, it's, it's a fantastic product, you know. Tell me about some of the dishes that you, you cooked up that day because you did a few cookery demos, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were there for a couple of hours, we did a few dishes, yeah. So I suppose I kind of kept it very, very much to the to the family orientated I mean it was quite different to what I would do in Viewmount House I mean, what, I, what, I, what I did on the day is I did a lovely little, lamb takes extremely well to spice you know as I was saying to the girls it goes if, if they can get any Moroccan chefs anywhere near Ireland or anywhere near that lamb they're going to be inundated with it you know and as I say um, I did a lovely little couscous dish that day and I incorporated some Sintola um, organic the feta cheese that they do a beautiful little cheese down there so I made a couscous and then I spiced the lamb using some cumin, some fenugreek, and a little bit of cinnamon, even salt, pepper, a tiny wee bit of turmeric. And then we uh, made sauteed that up with some peppers and some onions and some courgette, a little bit of chili as well, chili powder as well as all the other spices. Then we we made our couscous, we folded it all together. While that was steaming and cooking, then we diced up our centola organic cheese or feta cheese, and we blended that in along with some cherry tomatoes and some goji berries. Sultanas. It was a beautiful advice. That one went down a real, real treat. You know, it's just couscous, spices, and lamb. It just works really, really well. And the lamb is it's mild enough to be, it's strong enough to carry its own flavour, and equally, it, it you know it's it's mild enough that it takes on board the spices, and you're just getting that little salty. So that that was a fantastic dish. Did a little egg fried rice dish again. A little bit of spiciness going in there. Uh, incorporated some shiratsu sauce in there as well little bit of hot sauce, cayenne, paprika, slightly different spices, and uh, obviously some long grain rice, and then we fried that off, a little bit of Donegal seed oil, and then we finished it all up then with a couple of couple of duck eggs, lovely duck eggs that I took from Longford myself, and some coriander. Beautiful wee dish, and one of these wee, wee, uh, ones that, as I say, you know, my wife Annette loves to have a lot of people over for dinner, you know, and you know, I served them in a big, large sort of paella pan, stuck it down in the middle, and everybody gets tucked in. Really, really beautiful, and uh, went down a treat, you know. And yeah, that was it. There was a couple of other ones now. I'm, I'm struggling to, to just remember every, the, the others now. You know, a quesadilla there, a lamb ragu. Now, actually, yeah, there was a lamb ragu dish that I did with the shoulders, and 
basically everybody loves a little roast on a Sunday as I say I call this my Monday or Tuesday go-to dish if we ever have a roast at home on a Sunday evening and that's exactly what I did it was the trimmings from the edges of a few slow-cooked Ackle Mountain lamb shoulders and I had a little Provencal sauce a lovely slow-cooked tomato ragu basically started some onions and some chickpeas and some courgettes again with a little bit of salt white pepper and some mild spices fresh basil then we added in uh, some pasta, like a little penny pasta. We tossed that up and we served that lovely little lamb ragu and a tomato sauce with pasta, courgettes and chickpeas. Really, really went down the treat. Fantastic, you know. So that sounds like a great one-pot dish. Well, that's what it was, yeah. I mean, most most of these dishes were, apart from, again, apart from say, the rice being cooked in a separate pot, apart from the pasta, every other dish on the day, I had a large pan or a large wok and basically from start to finish and it's funny you said because you know my wife and that always she that's her go-to dish and I suppose that's what I have in the back of my mind to make sure that I keep the chefiness out of it sometimes to make dishes accessible to people at home because that's that's what you want I mean you can buy these lambs online I think it's 99 they break it down all into little bags little into chops into joints and they send it off to you you can freeze them as they come to you take them out and use them and I wanted people to see that, like, you know, not to be afraid of the joint and not to be afraid of ordering a whole lamb because it's incredible value and you get it just like that and then you can cook it in different, you know, whether you roast the joints one day. So we talked about roasting the joint, we talked them through it and then having the ragu. And as you say, you know, you might put a wee bit of effort into tradition on Sunday and then when it comes to Monday or Tuesday, you want these little one pan, one pot wonders. And that's exactly what we showed, the versatility of the product. And, you know, it went down a treat and I was... I was thrilled to be there, I have to say. It's just lovely to be in the rugged rural Ireland cooking a, a product that I'd be happy to send to all my old pals back in Boston and, and, you know, just brilliant. I'd imagine you get lots of invitations to come and do cookery demos and it must be very difficult to kind of think, OK, what am I going to do this time because you've so many, you've such a repertoire of recipes, really. <laughs> yeah, so people always people always ask that, you know what I mean? And they're, they're sort of, you know, how do you keep coming up with ideas? You know, your your head's always spinning and you've got different little ideas coming in your head. And I suppose it's like anything. Um, what I've always found when I when I reopened Viewmount back in 2008, and it's always been how I've cooked from Donegal to Belfast to Galway to Boston and back, that we find an ingredient and then we work backwards. So anywhere I'm going or any town I'm going to in Ireland or if it's Ireland or America or wherever I happen to be cooking, I'll always try and figure out what ingredient is synonymous with either that village or town or farmlands or surrounding county and basically work backwards from there. You know, so sometimes that's nearly the easiest way. Instead of trying to always think about dishes, think about where you're going, think about the people that you're gonna be feeding and who you're gonna be cooking for. And I always I always use that as, as, as my basis of a starting point. And then I suppose it's just I suppose like anything, it's horses for courses food and dishes and ideas just come to me you know naturally a lot of the time sometimes you have to put a wee bit more thought and you know thinking into it it's like anything you know you, you can have a, a million ideas one day and then you might get writer's block uh, same way as, as as anybody would you know what I mean struggling to write something we struggle chefs struggle with the recipes and flows of recipes but for the most part you know it's touch wood it keeps coming that way but so far uh, I, I haven't run out of ideas just yet 
And speaking of writing, how is it going with your, your series for the McKenna's Guides? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, I, I was a nervous wreck writing for Sally and John. I mean, I, I'd go right back, we opened in 08, I think it was 2009, that, you know, it was Sally and John McKenna were one of the first people ever to show belief in me and, and put me out there as, as a chef to watch. And I often remember all them way back. I think I'm, they might even shed a tear one night reading some of the things John McKenna said about me. I've always looked up to them and all their, their band of writers all through the years, you know, from Joe McNamee and, and you know, William Barry and Caroline Byrne and all of them. Like, I mean, they're just Bernadette O'Shea. They're just, you know, it was such an honor to be asked by Sally and John. And after feeling that it was an honor, then I felt sick with nerves, you know. But yes, they asked me to write uh, a wee piece on kitchen mechanics, you know, like the machines in a pro kitchen that we can't live without and try to, and I suppose I try to write it in my own style. I think the first one I wrote about was the chef being, I suppose, the most important machine in any professional kitchen. And, uh, you know, a guinea pig that I give it to my wife and, you know, she can be a very, very tough audience, which is what I need sometimes, you know, like to have someone to say, look, it's no good, go again or write it again. But she really liked it and I was happy enough for that and I sent it off. And Sally and John got in touch to say that the response was just incredible. And the second one went up there a week or two ago and I'm, I'm currently now on the third part of what is what is to be a six-part series. I'm, I'm struggling to think which angle I'm going to take or which machine I'm going to focus on now. So we did the chef and I did the backpacker and talked about the value it is to a business and a professional kitchen in many ways. And yeah, it's it's so far so good and long may it last. It's a different wee avenue and I, I do enjoy writing. I mean, I wrote the book for Bluebird Care uh, last year and like each dish had, you know, stories from the heart and I wrote about that and I suppose it's, it's something that I'm starting to realize that I do that I do enjoy. And, um, you know, hopefully hopefully they continue to enjoy it and they continue to use me, you know. Well, listen, it has been fantastic talking to you this evening. I really enjoyed all those lamb dishes there. Do you have anywhere that people can get details of those recipes? Yeah, well, it's acklemountainlamb.com uh, or .ie, like online, the Google Ackle Mountain Lamb. Uh, all the recipes should be on on their site the Calvi family site and uh, they can check check it out on there they're on Twitter they can follow them on Twitter or follow Ackle Mountain Lamb on Facebook they have loads of pictures and all the recipes I'm sure are on their Facebook Twitter and on their own website and as I say I would highly encourage people because it's not just chefs and restaurants I mean these are, are products that they can ship directly to your house within a few days and you know well worth taking a look at and giving yourself that Look, it's a it's it's a it's a winter thing, you know. What about a different a different Christmas dinner from the turkey this year? A lovely lamb dish, why not? Absolutely, yeah, it's a great idea. And of course, if anybody wants to read your contribution to the McKenna's Guides, they can find it there on guides.ie. That's right, Gary. Fantastic to talk to you as always. We will keep in touch because I've no doubt now I'll be asking you to come on again in the not too distant future. So all the best until then. I would love that. Thank you very much. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. Great to chat to Gary there and I'll definitely have to have some lamb now in the menu in the in the Noonan household this week. They sounded like great recipes. That brings us sadly to the end of tonight's show. Thanks for joining me and thanks of course to all of tonight's guests. Ron Forrestal, Rachel Allen, Rachel Keeley 
and Gary O'Hanlon. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. I'll be back at the same time next week for more food and chat. Until then, have a great week and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!